Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In November, there will be a national election, and it is under dire threat, not just from foreign nations, but from domestic incompetence and unregulated corporations and politicians, and from the technology that is not up to the task. It imperils our very democracy. Today, my guests include three experts in the field of election security. First, John Bonifaz joined me by phone. John is a civil rights attorney and president and co-founder of Free Speech for the People. Later in the show, I speak with Susan Greenall, vice president of policy and programs for the National Election Defense Coalition, and Jennifer Cohn, who's an attorney, journalist, and election security advocate. The overarching theme, I think, of America's election system right now is that it's shrouded in darkness, which is really the opposite of what you want when you're thinking in terms there of election security. There was an extended, systemic effort to break into the election systems and county and state boards of elections across the country, as well as voting system vendors. There's this issue around machines, and if there's no paper trail, there's no opportunity to take a look inside these machines and look into the data in the source code. Then, you know, we're at a loss. The Senate report found that some of our voting equipment is aging and vulnerable to exploitation by a committed adversary. It is not letting me vote for who I want to vote for. Hi, I'm John Bonifaz. I'm fighting for election security and for our democracy. Sorry, not sorry. John, you're the president of free speech for people. And I think it's interesting because when people think of free speech, they don't necessarily think about voting. Can you help my listeners really understand how the two relate to each other? Yes. We're at Free Speech for People focused on fighting for our democracy. We were launched on the day of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling 10 years ago in Citizens United VFEC, challenging that ruling and the underlying doctrines of money equaling speech and corporations being treated as people. And last year, we decided to launch a new program at Free Speech for People to fight for election security to ensure free and fair elections for all Americans across the country and not have us vote on unreliable and insecure voting machines. Well, when we think of the threats to the integrity of our elections, I think most of us think about Russia right now. Are all of the threats foreign? No. In fact, before we knew about the Russian interference in the 2016 election, this concern around election integrity was paramount. It just didn't get as much attention as it does now. The fact is, is that since the 2000 election, we've seen the emergence of these electronic voting machines that voting machine manufacturers decided in order to make a major profit, they would market to states all over the country. And as a result, we now have this new threat to our democracy that doesn't just come from foreign interference, but comes from the use of unreliable and insecure voting technology when we go to cast our votes. Can you just run through some of the differences between 
the foreign and domestic threat to elections here in America? Well, the threat that comes with insecure and unreliable voting systems is a threat that can occur via a foreign actor or a domestic actor. When we go to vote, we must have a verifiable voting process, and our votes must be able to be audited or recounted. If we can't verify the process, then there's no way of knowing whether the tallies reported by the machines are correct. We need to have evidence-based elections, not faith-based elections, not claiming that somehow after we voted, we just believed in the machines. When every computer scientist who's looked at this question has stated that, in fact, these machines cannot be trusted for counting our votes without verification. When it comes to electronic voting systems that have no paper record whatsoever or that are printing out a so-called paper receipt that voters are never looking at, those systems are particularly vulnerable to hacking both from foreign actors and domestic actors. And the 2016 election only heightened our awareness of this because we saw the Russian government engaged in hacking into local and state election boards all across the country. There are many who have claimed there was no impact whatsoever on the actual results reported on Election Day. But the fact is we've never been able to verify those results in many states because there is no way to conduct a meaningful audit of systems that are electronic voting systems. There's nothing to recount. There's nothing to audit. It's so crazy to me because of all the issues that I've had to fight for in my activism, I've had the hardest time getting people to engage on election security in this country. And I can't figure out why that is. I can't figure out if it's because it just seems like a bigger issue than they know how to deal with or if they feel like there's nothing that they can do to help the situation. What do you think is the disconnect between this issue and the American people right now? Well, first, I do think that we're not having leadership at the federal and state level demonstrate the concern that's present in our country with respect to our insecure and unreliable voting technology. Senate Republicans blocked an effort by Democrats to unanimously pass three election security related bills marking the latest attempt to clear legislation ahead of the November elections. Democrats tried to get consent to pass two bills that require campaigns to alert the FBI and Federal Election Commission about foreign offers of assistance, as well as legislation to provide more election funding and ban voting machines from being connected to the internet. But Senator Marsha Blackburn opposed each of the requests. So people aren't learning about these threats because elected leaders are not engaged mm. as much as they should be mm -hmm. in letting people know about these threats. That's the first point. The second point is that there's somehow this idea that when we go to the bank and we deposit money or when we use our computer somehow, that that's a safe technology and we shouldn't be concerned. And it is true that when you go to the bank and you deposit some money, you can actually go into the bank and verify that the money was properly deposited. You have a receipt and you can give your ID and you can demonstrate that you are the person who deposited those funds. We have anonymity in our voting for a reason. We believe in the secret ballot. So there's a big difference between using 
computers and electronic devices to make a bank transaction and using computers to cast your vote. That's a secret ballot, and there's no way of tracing your ballot, and there shouldn't be a way to trace your ballot to your name. And to protect that secrecy, we need to have verifiable elections that involve hand-marked paper ballots, because even without attaching the name to the ballot, people can go back, auditors can go back and look at the ballot and determine what the voter intent is. However, if you cast your vote on an electronic voting machine, there's no way to know whether the machine is properly counting your vote. The vote disappears into the machine, and we're led to believe, faith-based elections, that it properly counted our votes. So that's the other main reason, I think, that's associated with this. The third reason I would give as to why this hasn't risen to the level that it should be in terms of people's consciousness is because I think there's a fear that understanding what's at stake could really undermine the confidence we have in our government. Imagine if, in fact, we discover that one or more elections actually were not properly counted, were not properly reported, as we were led to believe. That would undermine uh, the, the faith in the government. But what truly undermines it even more is the threat that exists knowing that, in fact, we are not verifying our elections. That should be the most scary of all, and that's really why we and many others around the country are sounding the alarm on this question. So do you think people can vote freely in 2020 in the election? I wish I could say confidently that they can, but when we're using voting systems that are unreliable and insecure, no, I do not think people are voting freely. They have no way of knowing when they use those systems that their votes are going to be properly counted. So people in those jurisdictions where those systems are being used should demand paper ballots. They should demand it in advance of the election. And if they aren't getting it, they should demand it when they walk in there, that they are able to vote on a paper ballot and have that vote properly counted. But using an electronic voting machine, I would have no confidence as an individual voter that my vote is going to be properly counted. It's unbelievable to me and heartbreaking. You mentioned voting machines before, and I wanted to ask you, how are corporations that make the voting machines, are they regulated? This is a critical question, Alyssa. The fact is, is that we have an unregulated industry, by and large, when it comes to our voting systems. We only have a few companies that own the market on this, one of which has 70% of the market, ESNS, election systems and software, and they are engaged in marketing these products to states and counties all across the country without any real oversight. Yes, there's an elections assistance commission that engages supposedly in certifying these systems, but at the end of the day, what these companies are doing are marketing, in many cases, fraudulent products and It's been proven by computer scientists, by hackers at DEF CON, the conference where they have a voting village and they constantly show how these systems can be hacked. It's been proven repeatedly that these systems are not reliable and are not secure. And yet they continue to make millions and millions of dollars off of marketing these systems to states and localities. And once we understood in recent time that the original direct recording electronic devices they had been marketing since the 
Bush v. Gore fiasco and the millions of dollars mm-hmm. that got sent to the states to buy these kinds of machines. Once we understood that those machines were insecure and unreliable, the move to paper ballots began in many states. And so these companies decide, well, they're not going to make a profit out of paper ballots. Printing paper is not right. expensive. So they decided, well, let's market a new fancy device, which we'll call ballot marking device. And we'll insist that that be used for all voters. This is a device that's certainly necessary for accessibility for voters with disabilities. But it is not a device that should be used for all voters because for the same reasons, it's another touchscreen machine that supposedly is printing your ballot. What it prints is a barcode that's not decipherable by the voters. And there's a tiny little area where you're supposed to verify the vote. But Every study that's been done shows that voters don't engage in verifying that, and the insecurity and unreliability is repeated there. But the companies, of course, are still making a mint by marketing these new computer devices for voting. Do these companies have to have any special disclosure requirement on political affiliations? They do not. And not only that, they have a revolving door with some of these election officials. Some election officials are well-meaning, and they're not in bed with the voting machine manufacturers, but many are cozy with the voting machine manufacturers, and there's often a job on the other side after they leave their election post with these companies, and that revolving door needs to be shut as well. Uh, You know, these companies have major lobbying operations in many states, and they're constantly marketing their products, we believe, in a fraudulent way. This is an industry that, like the tobacco industry, like the oil industry, needs to come under intense public scrutiny and and governmental scrutiny because they are engaged in marketing fraudulent products for the purpose of us casting our votes. And there could be some kind of political bias going on with the election machines made by any particular vendor, right? I mean, is there any evidence of that? Well, there was a famous statement made by Diebold that has since been bought out by another company, Dominion. And that statement was made in advance of the 2004 presidential election. The president of Diebold said, we will deliver Ohio to George W. Bush. Mm. Uh, And Ohio was a state using Diebold machines. And of course, Ohio, it was declared a state that Bush won. I happened to be the lead counsel for voters and candidates who sought a recount in that state after the 2004 presidential vote in Ohio. And that's when I first discovered this problem, because in certain jurisdictions where these electronic voting machines were used, these D-bulb machines, there was nothing to recount. There was literally no ballot, nothing to be able to actually conduct a process of verifying the election. And so we still don't really know whether the results reported out of Ohio were correct. That's all I could say. It's so mind-boggling to me how this is not the most important story of the 2020 election, considering what we went through in 2016. CNN has learned that U.S. investigators believe Russia is behind a cyber attack on a contractor for Florida's election system that exposed voter data. This after the U.S. took the rare step of publicly naming and shaming Russia for hacks of Democratic Party leaders and institutions. Today, a grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment presented by the special counsel's office. 
The indictment charges 12 Russian military officers by name for conspiring to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. Eleven of the defendants are charged with conspiring to hack into computers, steal documents, and release those documents with the intent to interfere in the election. One of those defendants and a 12th Russian military officer are charged with conspiring to infiltrate computers of organizations involved in administering the elections, including state boards of election, secretaries of state, and companies that supply software used to administer elections. Right now, as we're recording this, we're watching life in our country change dramatically, probably more than it ever has in any of our lifetimes as a result of the coronavirus. Do you think that this is going to affect the election? Do you think that there are politicians that will use this to either suppress the vote or even cancel elections? Well, we're already seeing some states in the Democratic primaries decide to postpone the elections, and that's leading to the question of what will happen in November. You know, I do think that there are obvious concerns in the midst of this crisis with the coronavirus of asking people to show up at the polls when everything else is closed and we're told we need to engage in social distancing. So I don't think it's out of the question that under an emergency like this, voters should be provided with no excuse absentee voting to be mailed a ballot and participate that way. There are concerns with privacy and the security of vote by mail. And so it's not a solution going forward beyond this emergency. But it is, I think, an important tool that we must use. The other thing that we need to realize is that we go into polling sites, if people choose to do that, and they engage in a touchscreen machine, that's a vector for spreading this virus. And it's far safer to ask people to vote on a paper ballot. The final point on this is that it's been shown now that hand sanitizers, the material from that, can mess up the touchscreen machines. And so if voters are going in with all the hand sanitizers that are being used to deal with this virus, there actually could be errors produced simply by touching the screens that way. So this is another reason why we ought to press for hand-marked paper ballots and, in the case of an emergency like this, press for vote by mail. But I think we have to be vigilant with respect to this president who has shown an unwillingness uh, and a defiance, really, to obey the rule of law and our Constitution. We have to be vigilant in terms of what he may try to do using this crisis yeah. with respect to the upcoming election. He has no authority as the President of the United States to postpone a general election. He doesn't have any ability to do that. That doesn't mean he will not try. And we really do, as a people, have to be ready if he does. So what can we do as Americans to just protect the basic right to a safe and secure election in 2020? Well, I think the first point on this is that there are already many people around the country who are fighting on this question, and we need to join those fights at the local level and demand hand-marked paper ballots in all parts of the country, as well as robust audits. So if you live in a jurisdiction that does not yet have hand-marked paper ballots, I would urge your listeners to call 
their elected officials to call their secretaries of state and to demand that that change be made statewide. I also think that beyond the handmark paper ballots and robust audits, robust audits for verifying the process, we need to, as a people, be prepared for the misuse of this emergency that we're facing today by the president to try to change the date of the election or postpone it in some way and make clear that that will not be accepted or tolerated, that we will completely demand upon Congress that it act accordingly to overturn any executive order he might try to issue on that front, that we will litigate in court. And then, you know, with respect to free speech or people, that's really the final piece is what we're engaged in. We're fighting back in the courts on this question because we do believe that our right to vote is undermined when we cannot assure that our votes are being properly counted. The right to vote is not just the right to access the ballot, but it's the right to ensure that vote is properly counted. And that's why we're challenging insecure and voting systems across the country. Right. Is there any place doing this well, any place in the United States, any state that's actually making progress in this area? There are a number of states that have shifted to hand-marked paper ballots. I live in Massachusetts. We have hand-marked paper ballots throughout the state. We do have an audit law. It could be strengthened, but it's better than some states. So there are states that have made the right moves, and much of it has become because of the computer scientists sounding the alarm and making state election officials aware of the dangers. But there are still other states, including Pennsylvania, where we're litigating this question, that have allow some counties, if not all, to use these unreliable and insecure voting systems. Georgia is another state where we saw the dangers of having a secretary of state who didn't care about the voting process, Brian Kemp, tried to elevate himself to the governor's office, which he did, mm -hmm. uh, essentially using not just voter suppression, but relying on a system that cannot be trusted for the counting of votes. Brian Kemp took his family into the historic Winterville train depot to cast his vote. And when he got in, he voted, as most Georgians did, on a computer terminal with 16-year-old Windows 2000 technology. After he went to a voting booth, he returned, holding the yellow voting card in his hand, and told the poll worker... this is an invalid card. Okay, you go back in there, read it for you. Kemp, who runs the state's elections, then returned to fetch a card that actually worked. I think that we're dealing here with a mixture of some states that are doing the right thing and others that still are not. And when we're focused on a national presidential election, the danger, of course, is that those that are vulnerable will be the targets for either benign problems, the machine breakdowns and long lines, which are disenfranchising to people, or even worse, intentional hacking. And if you could give a piece of advice to a voter in America to help them protect their vote, what would it be? Well, number one, it would be to demand that they get a paper ballot to cast their vote. And number two, it would be demanding that in every state we have robust audits, that we verify the process, and we don't just rely on the machine tallies, even with a hand-marked paper ballot system. And then finally, that we rein in these voting machine companies and demand that there be scrutiny over the kind of profits they're making in selling fraudulent products to taxpayers all over the country. Thank you, John, so much for fighting this fight when 
It seems like very few people are up to the challenge. I appreciate you so much. Hi, I'm Susan Greenhall, and I believe that our elections should be transparent and auditable, and where they're not, we need to call it out and say so. Sorry, not sorry. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on Sorry, Not Sorry. I'm going to dive in because this is a topic that is so damn important, and I think anyone who has been following me on Twitter since basically November 9th, 2016, has read me screaming about this in caps locks about our election insecurity and our insufficient action to prevent a known election cyber warfare. It's everything from old and vulnerable machines to inadequate physical and electronic security for ballots, tabulation, and more. So am I wrong to say that the 2020 election is extremely vulnerable? I don't think so. Just let me start by saying thank you so much for shining a light on this issue because it is, it's so critically important. It is the very foundation for how we elect our leaders and express this self-government that the United States is founded on. And so it's so important that we have secure elections, we have fair elections, we have accessible elections, and that we have transparent and accountable elections that the voters can have confidence in. And Everything kind of got thrown on its head in 2016 when we learned that there are foreign adversaries, very well-resourced, determined, capable actors that want to get in and mess with our election systems and potentially change outcomes, disenfranchise voters, and delegitimize our government. And I don't want to overstate it, but I think you're right. How can we not overstate the importance of that? And we haven't had a response that is proportionate to the level of threat and the consequences that we could face. I totally agree with you. And I feel like there is a legitimate disconnect between advocacy work based on corruption and political corruption and election security. And maybe it's just not a sexy topic. When I was first a UNICEF ambassador in 2003, there was a lot of discussion about clean water and sanitation and how we were not able to raise adequate funds for clean water and sanitation because it just wasn't, and they said Mm. it out loud, it's just not a sexy topic, even though it is the very foundation for the health and humanity of mankind and womankind. There is nothing if there is not clean water. There is no health. There is no development. There is no education. And much like that, I think that this is an unsexy topic and we can't figure out a way to make it something that is discussed as important as the corruption in politics or the dark money in politics. So I first want to know exactly what keeps you up at night about the 2020 (laughs) elections. Is there something specific that you are more concerned with? 
There are some things, and I'm going to go back to what you're saying and dovetail it with what is my biggest concern, which is that I think that's right. I think it's not a sexy topic and people, they don't get excited by it. They kind of don't understand it. But I think there's also a problem that we have been lulled into a degree of a false sense of security to some degree because we've been told over and over again that voting machines are not connected to the internet. And that kind of has been the blanket panacea for don't worry about this problem the machines aren't connected to the internet. So the Russians or some other foreign adversary can't actually hack the voting machines. And that's just not true. We've heard it at congressional hearings for years. Our voting machines are not connected to the internet. Those are not connected. Voting machines themselves are not connected to the internet. And we knew that wasn't true. And cybersecurity expert Kevin Skoglin wanted to prove it. So he and nine other independent security consultants created their own search engine looking for election systems online. We found over 35 had been left online, and we're still continuing to find more. What was really alarming was when you see these hackers, and these are people who've never seen these machines before, have had no practice on them for the most part, come in and and engage them, they immediately get into the guts of them. Um, Beyond that, uh, we were seeing Dominion's image cast system. It's a line of tabulators that paper ballots are fed into. That had its guts all over the room. It was not clear to us whether this was the most recent version of the image cast hardware, um, but it's important to know that Georgia just spent over a hundred, or is about to spend over a hundred million dollars on a contract with Dominion to provide image cast hardware to the state in time for the 20 uh, for the for the next primaries and for the 2020 election and yet here these kids were who had opened it up they said look you can pop the front off of it and here's a port you can get into right here that's easy you know all kinds of stuff that that you could certainly do within six minutes behind a curtain much less uh, if you had extra time because any of these were uh, connected to the web as we discovered a couple of days before um, so many of them are the latest warning comes from security firm semantic which has found a way to reprogram the cards used by some voting machines. A researcher told CNN that with a $15 device and a little expertise, anyone could give themselves 400 extra votes without poll workers suspecting a thing. What keeps me up at night is the fact that many cases, the voting machines are connected to the internet. So there's two issues here is that there are some machines that include wireless modems in them, and those wireless modems connect to the internet, and they transmit election results from those individual voting machines back to the county computers, which aggregate vote totals at the end of the night. Those machines at the county level also program machines for the next election. So while those machines are online to receive vote totals on election night, those county computers, they may be online to receive the election results for the school board election. And then those same machines will be used to program the machines a month or two later for the presidential preference primary. So machines are, in many states, directly exposed to the internet. That county computer that programs the individual voting machines then has to get those programming files, that programming data, from that county computer to the individual voting machines. That's generally done by uh, USB drive. Sometimes there's some other type of removable media or direct connection, or sometimes they do it wirelessly. And then that becomes another vector because if you've compromised that county computer 
you can then have the malicious software or what's called malware. That's the software that can play around with things transfer to the individual voting machines. And then there's another part to this problem in that there are many states that allow people to vote over the internet, actual internet voting, and that is directly, obviously, exposed to internet-based attacks. And all of these types of attacks, as I said, are internet-based, but then that doesn't include the uh, possibility of insiders that may be corrupted and bought off to help compromise a voting system. So this idea that just look away or put on the mask, it's okay, the machines aren't connected to the internet, is very facile and simple and doesn't really take into account a whole list of other threats and the fact that in many cases it's also just not true. So would you think that that's the one thing that Americans misunderstand the most about election security? I think that's right. I think that there's been a lot of misinformation that often is perpetuated by the voting system vendors. We've seen this on voting system vendors' websites, big letters, our voting machines are never connected to the internet. And if you dig a little deeper, you can see that they're selling wireless modems, which directly connect the machines to the internet. Let's talk a little bit about these vendors. What do you think about voting machines owned by companies with ties to major parties or politicians? I remember there was a report in early, I think it was 2019, that was circulating that Ivanka Trump had secured trademarks for voting machines in China. I mean, are we also dealing with a potential domestic threat to elections? I think there's always a potential domestic threat to elections as well, because there's a lot of money in elections. We can't discount criminal actors within the U.S. as well, crime syndicates and so forth. I think the bottom line with the vendors is that there's essentially zero oversight and regulation in the voting machine industry. They had assembled some of the most common voting machines in the country, both systems that are on the front end that you and I use to actually register our vote and the back end, tabulators and so forth, that you would feed a paper ballot into or that oversee a system. What was so interesting was I assumed coming into it that the big manufacturers, companies like ES&S and Dominion, had provided these machines to the hackers to, you know, field test them. But no, it turns out there's an extremely hostile relationship there and that ES&S and Dominion and other companies have basically said, we don't want to participate and and really have, have been quite aggressive in in saying we don't want to be part of this. So the organizers were reduced to finding these machines on eBay. There's a federal agency which has voluntary voting system guidelines. Note the title is voluntary, so the vendors are not required to adhere to them. The standards that they're testing to now were developed in 2005, so they're quite old and out of date. There's a a more recent standard that they've chosen not to test to, so they've been able to get away without testing to it. There's no enforcement of forcing them to certify their systems to more recent standards that are more applicable to today's security threats. There's no transparency into their ownership. Voting machine vendors have been asked by some states to provide a list of their major investors and principal owners, and they've declined. They are owned by these venture uh, capitalists, companies, I think is the, the term, where people invest, uh, investment firms. Um, so we don't really know who's investing in the firm, whose money it is that backs these companies. We have no transparency into their finances because they're privately owned. Uh, in many cases, they're outsourcing the production of their voting machines overseas to places like the Philippines, which is a non-democracy. There's so many problems with having our votes counted by private industry vendors 
who refuse to provide access to the software. They keep the software a secret and proprietary as a proprietary trade secret and are resistant to allowing their systems to be examined by the public, as we've seen in the vendor's resistance to allowing the hackers at the DEF CON hacking conference get a hold of the machines. They've been quite obstructionist to those types of white hat hackers looking at their systems, unfortunately. I know in 2016, Georgia, for instance, was using voting machines from 2002, right? I mean, I don't even own a toaster oven from 2002, (laughs) let alone something that is supposed to completely dictate the foundation of democracy, right? So are there other states? I mean, I know that they've switched their voting machines now. Still, the operating system is an operating system from 2005, I believe, in the state of Georgia. Are there other states that are vulnerable like this? Well, unfortunately, all computers are vulnerable. Um, Georgia, it's, you know, next level (laughs) in some of the ways that they're approaching their voting equipment and their election administration in general. TV cameras are barred from federal courtrooms, which is unfortunate in this case because it became a bit of a spectacle at times, viewed and heard by more than 100 spectators in two courtrooms. At issue is the 28,000 touchscreen voting machines that are now in storage that Georgia expects to use in November. In court, a Michigan professor named Alex Halderman cast three votes in such a machine after he had inserted a hacked memory card. The machine then spat out a piece of paper that misreported the votes. What we saw in the last year, it got exposed that there's been a big push for a lot of states to buy new systems. So this has been a bonanza for the vendors because they've been able to get a lot of sales, millions of dollars, tens of million dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars being put into the industry. And the systems that they've been selling, new systems that are being contracted right now or in the last couple of months or will be contracted in the next month or two, is for systems that are using Windows 7, which will end of life in January. So by the time they get that equipment delivered and take it out of the box, it will be using an operating system, which Microsoft has ceased supporting for security updates because it's out of date. And so the vendors are been using that operating system for their machines and selling those machines to the states. And I think our election officials aren't computer security experts. They're not probably paying a lot of attention to that type of thing. But because there's no oversight, there's no regulatory structure to hold the vendors to account, they've been getting away with selling systems that are using out-of-date software, out-of-date operating systems, which are not patched for the latest security. Do you think that's based on ignorance or do you think there's something more nefarious going on? I think it's probably less nefarious on election officials and it's just they're busy. They're not experts in computers and they're not looking for those kind of details. And what we've also seen is that the vendors are often not very forthright and they obfuscate or they won't even put in their proposals the operating system information. So unless you have a very, very astute election official who can demand answers to those questions, that information may not even be provided to them. And if they don't know to ask the question, they wouldn't know to see that something is amiss and that they shouldn't be buying a system that's running out-of-date software. 
Oh, it's unbelievable to me. It's so frustrating. I was super surprised to learn that the federal government has only allocated less than a billion dollars to election security. It's really disheartening. The federal government needs to get involved here to help fund election security, to make sure that election officials in the states have the resources that they need. But they also need to step in and start providing a much stronger regulatory framework to make sure that when that those hundreds of millions of dollars are being disseminated to the states, that it's just not business as usual and they're just not buying more equipment that is less than optimally secure or that's running out of date software that doesn't ensure that you can audit the system or that includes wireless modems and connects those systems to the internet. So we need sort of a comprehensive election security reform package coming from the government. I think that includes financial support, but that also will really strengthen the security of election systems all across the country because we still have states like Texas, like Mississippi, like Kentucky, like New Jersey that don't have a paper ballot. Most of the states in the country don't perform post-election audits of the paper ballot that are strong enough to detect and correct an error in the election result if there is one. And because our votes are counted by computer, you really want to have an audit after every election using the paper ballot that the voter has marked themselves either by hand or by machine if they need assistive technology and is verified that their vote has been recorded correctly so that then you use that to audit and make sure that the results are correct and that the computer hasn't miscounted what the voter intended. Are there any states doing this right? The first place we usually point to is Colorado because Colorado is the first state that's doing statewide what we call risk-limiting audits. Those are the best sorts of post-election audits. And when you're talking about statewide races like maybe senator or president, you want to have a statewide audit conducted to make sure that the election result is correct. There are some other states that are moving in that direction. Rhode Island will, by 2020, be conducting statewide post-election risk-limiting audits. And we're hoping Michigan, um, fingers crossed. There are other states that do reasonable and good post-election audits, but not the gold standard. And unfortunately, it's not across the country. And there will be states that are not doing any type of audit or check on their election results after people go to vote in 2020 to make sure that the machines were counting correctly. So here's a big question for you, Susan. You ready? Sure. Are the primaries vulnerable? The primaries are definitely vulnerable. What worries me about primaries is that generally there's less scrutiny on them than a big general election. So all elections are vulnerable and uh, you never know how the turnout's going to go. It can explain away things or not. And we need to be making sure that people show up to vote and to get involved as much as they can, become poll workers, participate in your county's post-election audit if you have one, participate in any pre-election testing that's available to the public and get involved and be part of the process. We hear a lot about Russia. Are they the only threat in your opinion? No, and I'm not an intelligence expert, but I've read a lot of the reports that came out of the Senate Intelligence Committee on this topic and other parts of the intelligence community. And we need to be vigilant and expecting attacks from 
according to our intelligence sources, from China, from Iran, from any other nation states. There are also crime syndicates that can be hired guns for somebody that wants to hack an election. I've been told some scary stories from some of the hackers at DEF CON that you can hire people in Eastern Europe to custom design your malware to do whatever you want. And they have help desks and they'll help you to set the malware up the way you want it and do what you want it to do and on the black market and the dark net. So it's really sort of open to all comers, basically. So we need to be expecting that there are going to be other actors out there that could be trying to disrupt our elections and not just change election results or keep people from voting on election day by manipulating voter rolls, but also just to disrupt the process and undermine our democracy. That's why we really need to be doing everything we can to fortify our systems and make them resilient. And when you think about all the other things that we're up against, like discrimination, like gerrymandering, things that are already in full force against a true democracy, and then you add this on top of it, it just seems so insurmountable. Here in the greatest democracy on earth, our government treats voting like one of the least important things we do. Voting should be easy, but what do you see instead? Long lines, confusing ballots, and lots of ways to try to intimidate people so they don't actually vote. Voting should be secure. And yet systems are not up to date, and the Russians, man, they get their chance to hack. It's time to make voting easy and convenient. Time to secure our elections and time to stop racist voter suppression. I'm wondering if you believe that any election outcomes have been changed because of security exploits in the past. We have no evidence of elections in the U.S. being manipulated because of some sort of malicious hack, but there is the instance in Ukraine in 2014. The election results were going to be posted to a system and the election commission found malware on that system, which would have swung the results to the pro-Russian candidate. And they were able to remove the malware before the results were posted around the nation. There was an election in Hong Kong that was compromised. And there's been some non-public governmental elections that have been found to have been manipulated. I'm talking about university elections, things like that, not public government elections. But it's a real threat. We can't minimize it and think it can't happen here. It most definitely can. And I just want to go back to your point about the suppression. I think we really need to also understand that when we're putting our voter registration rolls in all digital form and then using electronic poll books, that this creates an avenue for digital suppression where you can suppress votes for people in certain localities, certain demographics by changing their voter registration record so that their address is different. Or as you mentioned, said that so-and-so Jane Doe voted earlier. That's possible. So it's a problem that has so many different facets to it. And that's why we all really need to be pooling our resources and get behind strengthening our system. And I said, again, making it resilient so that if those poll books or voter registration records are compromised, you have a backup that can be relied upon that has the actual information so that people aren't disenfranchised on election day and that they can get their voices and their votes counted. And is there anything an individual voter can do to protect their vote? 
The best thing to do is make sure you show up and vote. Everyone's got to show up and vote. Too big to rig. You got to make it too big to rig. Exactly. Too big to rig. I love that. We have to make sure that people get out and vote. And like I said, get involved, become a poll worker, observe the testing and the auditing if, if it's available to you in your state or jurisdiction. Okay. You ready for this last doozy of a question? Okay. Worst case scenario for 2020. There's so many different worst case scenarios. Election becomes completely disrupted and people are unable to vote and we don't have a change of government. Results completely skewed from the polls and nobody's saying that they rigged it, which means they rigged it, but they don't want to take credit. Results completely skewed or not completely skewed from the polls. Maybe they're absolutely right and somebody claims I rigged it. There's so many different ways. How can people get more involved and find out more about what you do? Is there a website we can direct people to? Yes, please. www.electiondefense.org, O-R-G. We're also working very closely with freespeechforpeople.org on legal challenges. So if you want to support our work, please go to our website. There are some actions you can take. You can always help us with more resources. And we have information in individual states. Like I said, states are different. So we don't have an across the board even security profile in all states. Some states are in worse shape than others. And if your state doesn't have hand-marked paper ballots with assistive technology for those that need it, that's something to work for. And if your state's not doing robust post-election audits, that's also something to work for. And there's different groups in those states that can help organize voters that are interested in improving those areas where there's improvement to be made around the country. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hi, my name is Jennifer Cohn. I am an election security advocate and attorney, and I'm fighting for the security of the 2020 election. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, so Jennifer, you're an attorney and most recently an election security advocate and freelance journalist. How did you find yourself on Twitter proclaiming the need for election security? Well, after the 2016 election, I was concerned about Trump's victory, and I was concerned about some sort of last-minute shifts in the votes in swing states toward him. And someone asked me on Twitter if I would do some research on the voting machines themselves. And it wasn't actually an area that had interested me previously, but I knew that I was good at research from my work as an attorney. And so I agreed to do that. And pretty quickly, I became horrified and laser-focused. What did you learn through that research? Well, mostly I learned that what independent and highly respected election security experts are telling us about our electronic voting system and what the federal government has been telling us were not really in sync, not even really particularly closely. So, for example, on the notion that voting machines don't connect to the Internet, that's sort of a talking point that was used quite a bit after the 2016 election, I think, to keep people calm. The truth is that even if the voting machines themselves, the precinct machines, don't connect directly to the Internet, they can all be hacked by Internet hackers. And the reason being they have a centralized point of attack, which is these central 
specialized computers, they're usually at the county or the state level, called election management systems. And those are used to program all voting machines, all precinct-based voting machines, before each election. And in many cases, they also include the central tabulators that are, again, county or state systems that are used to aggregate all of the precinct totals. And these centralized county or state election management computers often themselves connect to the internet. And even if they don't, they receive updates and other input from systems that connect to the internet. So we're really just one or two steps away from the internet, even as to the precinct-based equipment. I also learned that there's sort of a lot of trickery or vendors sort of play semantic games with us. And they're able to do it because a lot of the terminology in the election security field isn't formally defined. There aren't universal definitions. Uh, So for example, the phrase voting machine, there's not a universal legal definition. And so they would say, well, voting machines don't connect to the internet. Well, the thing is precinct-based ballot scanners that people put their paper ballots into in many cases now do connect to the internet. I don't know if they were claiming that those aren't voting machines or if they believed that they were just lying or they thought it didn't count because they're only connected for a short amount of time, but they were either lying or misleading on this subject. And that that really hooked me in. Let's back up for a second. Sure. From what you learned, tell me about the different types of voting machines we currently use in this country and what are the differences between them? So there are primarily three types of what I'd call voting machines that are the types of machines that voters interact with when they go to a polling place. The first type is called a direct record electronic voting machine, and most of those are touch screens. Most of those were bought around the time of the Help America Vote Act of 2002 in response to the hanging Chad debacle. Many of those are still in use today, and they've been highly criticized as being very hackable. That should terrify people. That alone should scare the shit out of people. The other type of equipment that some call a voting machine, most experts I think would consider it a voting machine, is precinct-based ballot scanners. Traditionally, they were used to count hand-marked paper ballots. So you would go to your polling place and you would fill in a paper ballot by hand and then you would put it into this scanner. And this scanner is where you cast your vote and it's what counts your vote at the precinct. So about 70% of the country uses that, approximately. And then the third type of equipment, it's been around for a while, but it's sort of this new trend as of the last two years to make it really broadly deployed, is called a ballot marking device. And those sort of resemble the DRE touchscreen voting machines. Most of them do. They're touchscreens as well. But what they do, their sole function is to replace the ballpoint pen. So they mark your ballot for you. It's a hackable machine that unnecessarily marks your ballot for you, and then you still have to use the scanner. You still have to then go to the scanner. And so what most experts recommend is that we use the least amount of electronic voting equipment possible, which would either mean hand-marked paper ballots and hand-counting, or what more of them recommend due to the length of our ballots is hand-marked paper ballots and these digital scanners. And the good news is that it is about 70% of the country that does that, but there is a significant percent that was using these DRE touchscreens. And it seems like those DRE touchscreen jurisdictions are replacing their aging equipment in many cases, not with the least equipment possible, but with the most. They are doubling up. So they're going for these ballot marking devices to unnecessarily have a computer mark the ballot for you, and then also having the scanner portion as well. 
this is a trend actually that I have been writing about for over two years, these ballot marking devices, because they've exploded all over the country. And there are many problems with them, but they were always around for voters with disabilities. I should say that first. And they should remain available for that purpose. Absolutely. The concern, though, is that vendors have been marketing them in the past three years for use by all voters, and they're insecure. And they put the burden on voters at the polling place to detect whether a hackable machine, the ballot marking device, has put fraudulent or erroneous marks or omissions on their paper ballot. And a new study shows that 90% of voters don't notice errors on these What's really inexcusable is the study was done by Professor Alex Halderman, who you've probably heard of at the Mm -hmm. University of Michigan. He's very Mm -hmm. well respected. What's to me especially stunning about this is not just the 90% figure, it's that we already had a good idea that this was going to be the result of the study based on prior studies that had already been conducted on similar machine-marked printouts. And so really, the gold standard of election security is hand-marked paper ballots, either counted by hand or on scanners. We hear so often that our election system is basically just too decentralized to even allow for an outcome-altering attack. Do you think that's true? No, this is one of the great myths that has often been told by members of the U.S. government and, frankly, others about our election system. And the truth is, it's actually quite centralized in one really critical way. And what I mean by that is that just two vendors— ESNS of Nebraska and Dominion Voting, which was at least originally a Canadian company, account between the two of them for more than 80% of U.S. election equipment. And then if you add on the third vendor, Heart Inner Civic, you get the number to over 90%. So what you have is the phrase is oligopoly of vendors controlling our electronic equipment, accounting for more than 90% of U.S. election equipment. And the reason this is so dangerous is if there are corrupt insiders at any of these vendors or if they're hacked by internet hackers, or if they're otherwise infiltrated, it can wreak havoc on elections throughout the United States. And do we know if any of these vendors have political affiliations? To an extent. For the most part, they're now owned by private equity, which makes it a little bit difficult to trace these things. But ESNS in particular, well, it was founded by two brothers named Bob and Todd Yurosevich, and the money that they used to found the company, this was back in the 1970s, came from the families of two religious right billionaires named Howard Amundsen and Nelson Bunker Hunt. And so they were certainly extremely conservative and, in fact, probably could both be considered what are known as dominionists who want to spread a theocracy throughout the United States. So that's sort of a at least an initial indication. And then for a period of time, its chairman was Chuck Hagel, who later became a Nebraska senator. So again, this is a Nebraska company, and Chuck Hagel's election was conducted with 85% of ESNS equipment, and he won. And it was quite a swing, either from the pre-election polls or the exit polls, but there was a swing of something like 15 Mm. points in his favor. So that was considered sort of one of the first, I guess, suspicious would be the words, ESNS elections. And the McCarthy group is typically considered a conservative group. They own the Omaha Herald, which is considered a conservative newspaper. At one point, these companies used to allow executives to make donations. And there were some pretty striking statistics from a company called Diebold Election Systems, which was acquired by ESNS in 2009. The Department of Justice intervened and made them sell some of Diebold's assets to Dominion Voting. 
But Diebold itself, the overall president of the company was a fundraiser, a big high rolling fundraiser for George W. Bush. And there was a sort of a scandal before the 2004 election when he promised to deliver the election to George Bush. Well, as millions of American voters prepare to use electronic voting machines for the first time, uh, questions about who owns these vote counting machines are right. For example, Diebold Inc. has been shown to have strong Republican ties specifically to the Bush administration. Diebold is one of the companies buying to sell electronic voting machines in Ohio. In July, Diebold CEO Walden O'Dell invited Vice President Dick Cheney to his house in July for a fundraiser where he raised half a million dollars for Cheney. A recent article by Julie Carr Smythe in the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported Odell is a top fundraiser for President Bush's re-election. In a fundraising letter, Odell said he's, quote, committed to helping Ohio deliver its electoral votes to the president next year. Just now, President Putin denied having anything to do with the election interference in 2016. Every U.S. intelligence agency has concluded that Russia did. What, who, my first question for you, sir, is who do you believe? My second question is, would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? All I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me, and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. There was a study done, I think, by The New York Times, which showed that the vast majority of political donations from Diebold came from Republicans. I'm not even sure if there were any from Democrats, but if they were, it was a nominal amount. I'd say with Dominion, well, now it got a lot of negative press. And so the vendors typically have rules against those sort of donations. But What they do is to circumvent that as they have their lobbyists make the donations. In the continuing saga of all the disgusting and immoral and corrupt things that Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has done, he has now blocked election security uh, bills. And he just so happens to be taking money from voting machine lobbyists. Is there any government oversight of these companies at all? I mean, any kind of like universal standards, any oversight? At all. Yes, there's some oversight, but it's extremely minimalist. So what happened is after the 2000 presidential election with the hanging chads, Congress passed something called the Help America Vote Act, and it allocated billions of dollars that was spent on machines, mostly from these several companies. And it also established an agency called the Election Assistance Commission, which is in charge of what's called certification of election equipment. But its standards are voluntary, which means that they have really no teeth to them at all. They're merely guidance. And not only that, they don't conduct penetration testing or really anything having to do with the security of these machines. So instead of really helping, what they do is provide covers for vendors who, when they hear concerns about the security of their systems, respond saying, oh, everything is fine. We've been certified by the EAC and most of the public and maybe even most of the media and maybe even most current lawmakers don't realize that the EAC doesn't conduct election security testing, all they're looking for is to see that the machines work as they're supposed to work under normal circumstances. And they certainly don't have guidelines for disclosures of vendor ownership or that sort of thing. There's one fact I want to make sure I get in. It doesn't have to do so much with a political affiliation, but it's even a more alarming, I think, affiliation. So Diebold Election Systems, which I mentioned, one point accounted for about 30% of U.S. election equipment. And 
its president for many years was one of the two brothers that founded ESNS. And when he went over to Diebold, they bought a company from a convicted embezzler named Jeffrey Dean, whose crimes involved sophisticated computer tampering. And he became a senior VP and the largest shareholder of Diebold Election Systems. At the time, it was called Global Election Systems. Come on. And Yes, that is one of the facts that really brought me into this area. And it was uncovered incredibly, and this woman deserves a lot of credit. Beverly Harris was just a citizen election integrity advocate at the time, and she's the one who uncovered this. It wasn't the media, it wasn't our government. And that's in general been the case. We've had to sort of rely on citizens to discover these types of alarming facts. So some of the mainstream media picked it up, but then they really dropped it. But according to The Guardian, the embezzler programmed one-third of the central tabulators used in 37 states in 2004. There's going to be people listening to this and saying to themselves, well, this Jennifer Cohen, she's a conspiracy theorist. What do you say to those people? That's the problem when you have facts that are really shocking. But on this particular fact, one of the reasons why sometimes I think it works better for me, you know, I write a lot on Twitter and I can give sources, is that we have mainstream sources for the convicted embezzler. I can't prove that he rigged voting machines, but we have Paul Krugman, who is a very well-known name. He wrote about the embezzlers at Diebold. It wasn't just one, by the way. He brought over a prison buddy. Harper's has an incredible article that I really recommend that anybody read who's interested in this area called How to Rig an Election, and it came out in 2012, and they confirm it. It's been confirmed in other major publications as well, and I have the sentencing documents. It's not disputed. And the company never disputed it. Now, I don't know that this vendor is still involved in voting machine companies. I tend to think he's not. That's sort of what I've heard through the grapevine. But the lesson from it should be that no one is guarding the headhouse. And so who knows who else is out there? It's unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable. And it feels so daunting. You were talking about the vulnerability as before. There are three, I think, that we've established, which are the electronic poll books, the wireless modems and the ballot marking devices. Let's go through each of those and just discuss the solution. Like what should be done about the electronic poll books? Sure. First, I want to say there are actually, unfortunately, many more vulnerabilities. I've been focusing on these three lately, and I've been calling them the three scourges of election security because it reminds me of the three stooges, and I think it might help people remember it. And I've, mm-hmm. I've done some memes that way. The reason I'm focusing on them is I've really been tracking trends with voting equipment in the United States. And these are the three alarming trends that have really skyrocketed since 2015, which I think is a red flag. Anytime you have relatively new practices and new equipment, it's a recipe for disaster and It's just something I've been keeping an eye on. And they are certainly glaring vulnerabilities. So the first one you asked about was electronic poll books? Yes. So what electronic poll books are, are tablet computers used at the polling places to check in voters and confirm their voter registrations, and also to confirm that voters haven't voted yet and that they don't vote more than once. And the way this used to be done, and is still done in many places, is with paper voter lists. So these are replacing the paper voter lists. And in many cases, unnecessarily so. Part of the reason for the explosion of these electronic poll books is early voting and the big push for early voting and 
I've been told that they are a necessity for early voting. I'm not sure if that's true, but that seems to be possibly true. Whether they need to be used on election day is another story. In most places, I think the answer is no. And so apparently, as of 2018, according to the Brennan Center, about 34 states use electronic poll books now, at least in some jurisdictions, and six states use them statewide. And we again have a situation with almost an oligopoly or a duopoly of two primary vendors behind these machines. The two main ones seem to be No Inc. and Tenex. And certainly No Inc. has strong Republican connections. Tenex appears to have some as well. And they have problems. The thing is, so during early voting, they connect to the internet, which obviously everyone agrees makes them incredibly insecure. And even on election day, so that they can communicate with each other within a polling place or within a polling center, they connect to each other via Bluetooth. There's something called bluejacking that I guess is a thing. And so apparently they're very vulnerable to bluejacking. And what we can do about it... I mean, I think we should strive to minimize their use, but I'm not sure. Because of the big push for early voting, that may be incredibly difficult for 2020. So what we should really insist on and what Brennan Center recommends is to have paper voter lists as backup at every polling place that uses them. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. It seems like a no-brainer, but according to the Brennan Center, as of 2018, only about half of the 34 states that used them at the time had the paper voter lists at the polling place. And so this is something I think it may have to happen largely at a grassroots level where voters in different states contact their state and county election boards and start making some noise. What about wireless modems and ballot marking devices? Okay, so wireless modems. In about 2015, ESNS, which is the largest vendor in the United States, began installing wireless modems in precinct-based ballot scanners in some swing states and beyond. Some of the swing states are, in particular, Florida and Wisconsin and Michigan. And I believe that Dominion Voting has done the same thing. And in fact, during a recent congressional hearing, they all said that they were using these cellular-slash-wireless modems. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're so concerning is that, according to experts, bad actors could use small cell tower simulators, such as a Stingray, which I guess is a pretty widely used device by police departments to intercept and change vote tallies while they're being transmitted from the precincts to the central tabulators, the central county or state tabulators. And they should just be removed. That's the answer. This issue is finally getting some traction. It's an issue that I tried to get a lot of traction before the 2018 midterm election. I had the hashtag remove the modems and I had some graphics that went with it. I had people who were interested in trying to get it to take off, but it just didn't. Cynthia McFadden at NBC News just did a fantastic expose on these wireless modems. Voting machines themselves are not designed to be online. So how are some voting systems getting online? We got a firsthand look when we visited ESNS, the largest manufacturer of voting machines, and talked to CEO Tom Burt. Why is there a Sprint thing here and a Verizon thing here? There's a small percentage of jurisdictions in the country, a lot of them are in Florida, uh, who have decided that they want to modem unofficial results uh, to the election office. You know, you do wonder sometimes whether or not uh, our thirst for quick results sometimes may be interfering with our thirst for accurate results. You know, Cynthia, that, that's not my place to judge that one again. These jurisdictions have a need for that. Hopefully that will give us some of the traction we need to get the modems removed in all jurisdictions that 
have them installed. I just want my listeners to understand that this is not insurmountable. There is hope. We can affect this change, but it is about all of us educating and empowering ourselves and other people, the people that are in our circles, to demand that change, right? Wouldn't you say? I think that's right. And Unfortunately, it really has to come from the grassroots. There are no large organizations that are doing a great job at lobbying this. I'd say the National Election Defense Coalition, whose policy director is Susan Greenhall, they've been doing some really good work on it. Some of the larger national organizations are good on a few issues and then terrible on a few others. So in particular on the ballot marking device issue is where some of the larger organizations have really flamed out. So universal use ballot marking devices. What these are, these are the machines that I said had been around for years for voters with disabilities, but lately they've been proliferating for universal use. And in fact, I did an article recently for the New York Review of Books in which I identify many of the jurisdictions that have moved to these in the past two to three years. They're touchscreens, and I'd say that more than 250 jurisdictions have chosen them. In many cases, alarmingly, it is the most populous counties in the swing states that have gone to these. They've just put an extra layer of vulnerable, hackable equipment between voters and the paper record of voter intent, and there are many problems with them. I do want to point out it's been really hard to get traction on this issue, and the reason for that is that the vendors, election officials, and even some of the larger election integrity groups have expanded the meaning of the phrase paper ballot Mm -hmm. to include the machine-marked summary cards that are generated by these new universal-use ballot marking devices. It's a summary card that usually has a barcode on it and text, but the barcode is the only part counted as your vote. As I mentioned, studies show most voters don't look at them. They also are shown to cause long lines, which is sort of an underappreciated aspect of voter suppression. Long lines in the 2004 election in Ohio They extended for at least 10 hours in some places, five hours in others. It can be a really big deal. And these are touchscreens very similar to the DREs and other touchscreens that were used during that 2004 election. So they raise that sort of same risk. I have been advocating for two years for jurisdictions to not buy these touchscreen computers. And I think we should continue to do that. But understanding that many jurisdictions have already bought them, it's probably not realistic that we're going to get those jurisdictions that already bought them to send them back before 2020 anyway. Maybe some of the, I shouldn't say that actually. We can't count on it. Are you seeing any trends in populations who are more vulnerable to election hacking? Like, is there any ethnic or socioeconomic groups more likely to have election outcomes change than others? Yes. So ESNS in particular, I believe it was its paperless voting machines. According to Bloomberg and The Root, their voting machines seem to be losing votes from predominantly Black neighborhoods in both Georgia and Tennessee. And the elections that were checked were there was an election in 2015 that an election official in Tennessee happened to check the precinct totals against the reported totals and saw in these really predominantly Black neighborhoods that the votes were not showing up in the other end on the reported totals. And then similarly in Georgia, Marilyn Marks at the Coalition for Good Governance, she's an election integrity advocate and has done incredible work. And she found out that for the lieutenant governor's race in 2018, similarly, that she found 127,000, what she called missing black votes. They were under votes that could not be accounted for. They sort of ruled out all other potential explanations. And guess what? Georgia is one of the states that still uses the 2002 machines. 
Yes, but guess what? So they got Marilyn Marks has really done an incredible job there. She got a really historic ruling in federal court that those machines cannot be used in 2020, those paperless machines. But unfortunately, Georgia, which was the first state, by the way, to use paperless machines, paperless touchscreens statewide, is going to be one of the first, if not the first, to use these new universal use touchscreen ballot marking devices statewide. And that is still the subject of litigation. And they bought them from Dominion Voting. And so people are incredibly concerned about that. Are those the machines that even though they're new, they still are operating from an operating system from 2005? No. So age is a problem. And I know that Brennan Center talks about outdated equipment. It is a problem, but the new equipment can be just as problematic. So it's not that they're outdated. These are the new dangerous systems. These are sort of DREs 2.0. And we can expect many of the same problems that we had with the old touchscreens with these new ones including calibration errors is a huge thing with these touchscreens. So you were, if you remember in Georgia there were and Texas, there were reports of people going to vote and the, the machines seemed to default to one candidate or the other. Usually yes. in, those, in those elections, it was they all seemed to be defaulting Republican, but there actually have been quite a few instances where Republicans have complained of something similar in other states. And usually those are chalked up to what's called miscalibration. And with these new machines, ESNS, I found it online. They gave a big sales presentation in Pennsylvania saying that the new machines, the touchscreen technology has come such a long way that we don't have to worry about calibration anymore. Even said Scout's Honor. And then sure enough, in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, there was an election in November 2019. They had massive calibration issues with Mm. their ExpressVote XL ballot marking devices. So ballot marking devices are really the machine to watch for problems, (laughs) I'm afraid. And the way to answer this, by the way, we don't need vote-flipping touchscreens. We just don't need that, even if we're only talking about voter confidence and election outcomes. The concern isn't so much the voters who notice and correct. It's always that there are going to be voters who don't notice flipping and don't correct it. And again, right. remember that study that showed that 90% of voters, even on the printout from these things, don't notice errors. So what can we do about BMDs? Discourage them from buying them for universal use in the first place, by which I mean for use beyond voters with disabilities. But number two, they should at the very least, even if they have gone ahead and bought these, and many have bought them despite vociferous opposition from experts and from voters, even if they've decided to go ahead and buy these, they should then make sure that all polling places give voters the option to handmark their paper Mm -hmm. ballots. If that doesn't work, if they refuse, and we should write our county election boards and state election boards and push for this, if that doesn't work, I'd say rather than voting on a touch screen, you would want to go to vote by mail. I do not want to pretend that vote by mail is a panacea, though. Cheaters are going to cheat. So every election system is vulnerable in different ways. But I would say that vote by mail is probably better than voting on a touch screen. And what you do want to do, though, because I have concerns with vote by mail as well, one of the main concerns I have is our voter registration systems are so vulnerable. And if hackers were to change people's addresses, even by a digit or two in the voter registration system, they won't get their mail-in ballots to Mm. cast. And this is sort of something that happened in the recent general election in the UK, is that a lot of absentee voters didn't get their ballots or they got them late. So if you're going to vote absentee, you want to ask for that absentee ballot as soon as possible so that if it doesn't arrive, you have enough time to make noise about it and make sure that you get it. Are you fearful about 2020? Yes, I'm very nervous about 2020. What makes you the most nervous? 
Well, all of it. I, I, the three things I'm the most nervous about are the electronic poll books all failing en masse and people not being able to vote and being sent to different precincts. I think this is a new vehicle for something that has happened before. It happened in 2004. It's happened in prior elections. And these electronic poll books being so vulnerable really facilitate that. I'm really worried about the universal use ballot marking devices failing en masse or being used as voter suppression through disproportionate distribution of them. And I'm very concerned about the wireless modems. I'm really concerned about voter registration systems in general, just that they can be screwed with even if breaches are discovered. And we had breaches discovered in 2016. There's no apparent remedy for it. And this is something I really want to research, whether this is something that should provide the basis for election challenges and why people learned that there were these breaches and our government said that they can't say for sure whether our data was changed and there almost seems to be like this rolling over on our back. There's no remedy for that. This seems super daunting and big and important and overwhelming. But I want to talk specifically to the people who are just learning about election insecurity from this episode of the podcast or just caring about this issue now. I'm wondering if in layman's terms, can you break down what people should know and what an individual can do to ensure that their vote is properly counted? Number one, they can ask to vote with a hand-marked paper ballot. And by ask, I mean call their county election board and state election board in advance and make sure that that's an option and then request it on election day. Number two, they can bring a completed sample ballot with them to the polling place. And if they do have to vote on a touch screen, they can at least use that completed sample ballot to help them properly verify that the printout from the touch screen matches their intended selections. It's very crucial that they do that. Number three, before they go to the polling place, they should check their voter registration status and make sure that they're going to the correct voting place. They should bring with them a screenshot confirming their voter registration. And I would say that before election day, it's really important to call their county and state election boards and make sure that if they use these electronic poll books to sign in voters at the polling place, that there will be backup paper voter lists in case something goes wrong with the electronic poll books. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for doing this amazing work. I know it can often feel thankless, so I want to say thank you. Voting is one of our most fundamental rights. It's one of the most tangible ways that each and every one of us can shape our communities. And as we enter this fourth industrial revolution where technology is changing everything around us, you would think with something as important as the right to vote, that we would have the most modern, secure, inclusive system that could exist. But we don't. When we look at comparable democracies, the U.S. has one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the world. We have a system where even the most persistent voters come up against exhausting barriers, a system where 20th century technology like fax machines, and outdated practices stand in the way of full, vibrant participation. In U.S. presidential elections, turnout hovers around 60 percent. The numbers are even lower for local elections. That means that nearly 40 percent of Americans aren't voters. That's nearly 100 million people. I believe in something very straightforward that everyone should have the information that they need to become a voter, that the voting process should be seamless and secure, 
and that every voter should have information they trust to make decisions about the candidates on their ballot. If we can't vote, who are we? Is there any more fundamental action of our citizenship, of the American identity, than determining our own destiny? That's what's so important about securing our elections. It's about securing our very soul as a nation. There are enemies to America. Some of them are overseas. Some of them are right here in our nation. Some of these threats are intentional and some are circumstantial, but they all matter. Every single one of them matters. We wouldn't dare allow a member of government to take away our vote. We would fight with everything we had if a politician came up to us and said, you know what, your vote doesn't count. So why would we let any of these problems, these clear threats to our democracy, do the exact same thing? My vote matters. Your vote matters. But only if they're counted. So will they count? Only if we act. And act now. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review,